for the inaugural episode of the Cuban Bits podcast. We are delighted to have Mr. Kunal Tyagi. In the institute, Kunal was quite involved in the autonomous underwater vehicle AUV team and was head for two years and graduated with BTEC and MTech in aerospace engineering. Currently, Kunal leads the perception team at Rapita Robotics in Japan. Thanks for joining us, Kunal. Glad to be here, Gavin. How's your experience been in Japan? Uh, it was a bit of a culture shock in the beginning. I mean, as kids, the image you have of Japan is quite different than the reality. And I had never been to Japan before except for uh, layover. So the beginning few months were very eye-opening for me. But people are quite friendly. The language is quite hard and slowly you settle into a rhythm. It becomes similar to when you move across India to other states where you don't know the language. During your tenure as the AUV team lead, the team secured second place in RoboSub. It yeah. performed very good this year as well. Meeting up experienced teams from prestigious universities and a lot of collaboration happened too, like I think with DRDO as well. What was your perspective in your five-year journey in the team and what were the challenges and how did you overcome them? First of all, I would congratulate the current team. I heard they got a third prize in the remote RoboSub competition. So it's a different format this year must have been very hard for them. And yeah, because in my five-year stint in the team, we always knew what we were up to. It was hard getting the funding. It was hard from a technological point of view. But most of the challenges were quite well known ahead. Like moving the robot in water, you knew that you you need to waterproof your electronics. And you know the cameras will not perform very well. So those are the kind of technical challenges you face, but those are not what I remember right now, you know. Right now, the challenges that I think we should have focused on were more human challenges. For example, how do you make sure all the deadlines of three different teams meet? That's a challenge that I did not face till I was in my fourth year at uh, IIT. And I did not think that would be a hard thing to do, but it turns out getting people to do things is harder than doing them. And it requires a very different kind of mindset to manage the teams than a technical mindset. So it will be it was a tough transition for a person who's very interested in tech to go into that kind of management type of job. And another thing that we had trouble during my time was collaborating with the industry. Again, like the current team is doing very well with the collaboration with LNT, but we had a hard time getting collaborations to set up the next uh, team for a bigger stage. In foreign universities, I know about uh, Cornell and um, Purdue too, I think. They can earn force credit for their participation in student project teams like we have AUV and Racing and UIC. Yes. Do you think we should or can have something like that at IITB? How would that affect the tech team, uh, the recruitment process? Would you care to weigh in, Kunal? Credits for technical teams was sort of the thing that you used to discuss back in college. Like we are spending 20, 30 hours a week on this. We should be able to get some credits for it, right? Makes a lot of sense, especially because, you know, IIT is a technical institute. But like, if you think from a perspective of other students, then the things become a bit tricky. So either you would burden a project with oversight or you would need to give a lot of thought to the technical activities involved in non-technical projects. Also, what type of credits will you give to a person who's doing a non-technical job in a technical team? I mean, there are people working on making videos, on managing other people. 
if they also get credits, shouldn't other student projects get credits? This is from the point of view. But I think it, despite being a double S word, it will no doubt benefit the team. We do have currently uh, projects that are being done by individual students, which professors and departments allow them to take as uh, credited projects. And there are passionate people in tech teams like AUE and Racing who at times ignore academics and work very hard for uh, the success of their tech team and in their domain. I know personally some people who have put academics away and just worked into for the success of their tech team. Wouldn't that be rewarding to them and save their uh, cards as well. Definitely. But how can I, let me collect my thoughts on this matter. Yeah. So when a student is doing project with the professor or research lab, there is a certain inflexibility. There's a certain rigor and there's a direction in which you are going. And those things are a known factor for the faculty. But in a student team, things can change very fast indeed. For example, in my second year, we lost our electronic stack. And for months, we did not develop anything new, but we had to catch up with our hardware leading to the competition in the last few months for in the preparation in conditions like these the faculty needs to know the work that the students do before setting up any criteria for credit definitely there are a lot of enthusiastic people working in the teams and giving credits to teams will actually increase the co-curricular work that people do and that is something that industry wants. Like I actually, when I recruit people, I want to see co-curricular activities on the resumes of fresh grads. I want to see what they love. I want the university to give credits to these courses. It's just, if you just create credits for these co-curricular projects, then there might be a backlash from the student body. That's also something that should be thought of before. There might be a middle ground. I mean, there's ITSP, which is sort of in the summer and you can have something like non-credit courses like we have NSOS as freshmen so that could be something that I am thinking of but I don't know I definitely want to see more co-curricular activities in the resumes and doing something would definitely be good but what that thing is I might create more controversy than anything else yeah it is a controversial topic anyway that's why I asked you Rakuten uh, is a world-renowned company and people aspire to work in a company like Rakuten. What has your experience been like? How does one go to working in a company like Rakuten? Mm. So I was able to secure a placement during the placement season at Rakuten. So as far as going to work at Rakuten is concerned, I know only one route and that is uh, your placement. They did not ask me a lot of technical questions. They were more focused on my work at AUV actually. So that's why I said like having some co-curricular activities really helps on a resume. And as for my experience, that was amazing. Uh, I had a lot of, I was the youngest in the entire department. So I had a lot of experienced colleagues to learn from. And a comparison is within my first year, I worked on three different kinds of projects, completely unrelated in the technology stack they used. So the first project was using a game engine to create self-annotated data. And the third project was how do you combine everything with a web server and give it at thousands of queries per second so that you can actually put all of this work that you have done to the consumers. So the breadth of the projects was really good to have in Rakuten. And as for your coming back to the question of how would someone work at Rakuten? 
if you can get as a fresh grad, that's the easiest route I know. Otherwise, you need to go through the usual rounds of interviews. First, there's a technical round where they ask questions taken from lead code. But after that, there's a hiring manager who himself or herself interviews the candidate. So in Japanese companies, often this is a very unique thing where the person under whom you will be working interviews you. So that ensures there's a very good fit between the manager and the worker. Oh, okay. So you are currently uh, leading the perception team at Rapida Robotics. What are you currently working on and could you elaborate on that? Sure. Uh, currently, we are trying to see if the new advances in hardware can help us bring AI closer to robotics. For example, most when people when I talk about using neural networks, most people will think of something like a GPU or using cloud and servers. What we are doing is we are putting a small GPU very close to the hardware. So an embedded GPU and a camera together. And we are looking at how we can increase the operation area of robots manifold. For example, right now, I actually just submitted our entry for the OpenCV special AI competition in which we added the perception capabilities to an autonomous forklift and how that uh, helps the current autonomous forklifts is now you can detect pellets which are at any location with respect to the forklift, any orientation, any load on top and obstructions. And you can do this at 10 Hertz, 15 Hertz. If you compare that to classical methods, this is a game changer. And that's what uh, we are doing right now. Before that also, I did things very similar to this, like using AI and SLAM and how to make the SLAM algorithms, which are mostly classical, benefit from the new developments in AI. Do you think uh, robotics exists in Insti at it really should? Does it have its fair place like in, Insti in the institute right now? I think robotics is neglected in the institute, to be frank. The way I would have expected robotics to exist in the institute would be to have a platform on which the students can experiment. The students, the BTEC, MTEC, PhD, anyone. If you have a platform, then you can really iterate very fast. No matter what part of robotics you are working on, if you are working on electronics, knowing that you can replace one part of electronics with something else and not having to worry about that something else, that really helps. If you're working on path planning, if you know the robot can move from point A to point B, you can actually test your path planners, not just in simulation, but in real life. And a lot of universities that are famous for robotics actually have their own platforms for this. So having a platform would really help kick robotics and research into the next level at Institute. And like based on my work in the AUV team, we are definitely doing a lot of exciting robotics in the Institute. We just need to bring it to the next level. Would you care to elaborate more on your suggestions like specifics? Sure. Uh, let's take uh, University of Edinburgh, for example, which is not one of the ones that you mentioned. They have three platforms. Uh, one is humanoid, one is wheeled, and the other is a flying robot. Sure. I mean, buying three different hardware, that's not a big financial investment. No, what they did was more. What they did was they bought several of these, modified them differently and provided a stable base. So let's say you are researching on, like I said, mapping. You want to go to a height and map and see the how the ground changes 
or you want you are working on human interaction so you want to take the robot and see how people interact with it which is sort of sort of a soft science study but all of these require you to have utmost confidence in the lower layers of the robot and that comes only like that takes time for that to develop in our team it took us 3 4 years to have a platform where we were sure that if we do this then the robot will definitely do this without any surprises once you have this kind of capability then you can kick start any further research that you are doing until then is very difficult so having stable platforms is really good or i'll say essential for any research in robotics and we won second place just 2 years after we had a stable base as a auv so i think it's also from my experience in industry that in a stable base no matter what kind of research you are doing is required and in robotics people will be researching on lots of things so you need lots of different kinds of stable bases you need some investment into them before you do research oh, so the stable bases are as in so let's say you have a, a lab that researches stair climbing robots so someone will be creating a hardware that will sort of a new hardware for stair climbing and that project might take 3 4 years at the same time you will have a parallel team working on the control software or the perception software for the stair climbing but the second team they need a stable base so you need to buy something from the come from the some from somewhere you need to pay money you need to invest into having a transitional base for them to work on before your mechanical design is finished you need to have something that is a known quantity does that make sense yeah it does um so getting forward to the buzzwords uh, what's your take on internet of things the internet of things revolution and what, what do you expect of the field in the future i think iot is quite promising but as a buzzword is polarizing right now i mean we have all been waiting for the next iot revolution since like since i was in college we have been waiting the oh the this is the year of the iot this is the year of the iot no iot is not going to come like a tsunami because it's already there around us the smart watches smart doors smart doorbells all the tvs that are now being sold all of them are iot you will not see a revolution you will see slowly slowly everything that was dumb will be replaced by something smart sadly i think the companies are focusing more on how they can profit and how they can make a wall garden like you know app store so that's why you don't see the network effect that we saw with the smartphones and the social networks once we somehow have a api over which this network effect will be leveraged then i would say iot has arrived but till then we just keep the trickle of iot devices coming into your gyms into your offices into your houses like we need a equivalent to the android operating system as the android operating system was to the smartphone revolution we need something like that for iot yes definitely uh something that allows interoperability between your apple products your alexa your garage door which is currently controlled by a special app on your smartphone this model doesn't scale this model has no network effects this doesn't give money to anyone except the company that makes and charges you so we need a an environment sort of in which collectively all the iot devices are compatible 
Yeah, but one of the things is IoT also needs security, right? I don't want anyone to be able to open my garage door or my front door. So having security and openness in your platform, I think that's why companies are going for a closed environment. I am not sure, but let's see. Another thing that I think IoT will change because of which, uh, sorry, a factor why IoT will change is the edge AI, like embedded neural accelerators. They're already there in your smartphones for face detection. They will change IoT like never before. You will go from motion detection based light lights in your house to an AI that can watch privately your schedule and tailor around that very black mirror. Seems like IoT needs the open source revolution for its moving forward. Yes. Actually, if you there's a lot of people who are investing like their personal time to make their own house tailored to their liking. So definitely something like open source and customizable, especially for the early adopters, that's definitely needed. Oh, okay. So the next buzzword in our list is AI. You have worked quite a lot as an AI researcher. And as you talk, I get the gist that you are quite passionate for AI. What do you think about the emergence of the field and what direction do you think further strides being in? I think, uh, uh, okay, let me again, okay, let's say, yeah. So I already said before that edge AI will change how we interact with all our devices, which we don't have in our houses. It already is changing how we consume content. I mean, if anyone is there on any of the large social networks, Facebook, Reddit, Twitter, they're already consuming content, which is generated by AI. Sure, the content is written by a human, perhaps, or written by some model like bird but at the end is the ai which decides what do you see and what you don't see the next step in ai would be helping the generation of the content for example if you see the gans that nvidia showcased in the european uh, computer vision conference it was very fun to watch just a few strokes of a pencil and you can get a very good picture that you can put as the backdrop of a blog so AI's next step would be empowering all the creative work around because right now creative work takes a lot of time and effort. If that can be reduced, that would be a revolution in content generation, not just curation. And another thing that AI has been going through is making itself more accessible. 10 years ago, neural networks were still there. People were still deploying neural networks, but no one, not everyone was training their own networks. Not everyone knew how CNNs work, but, and now the AI field has made itself very accessible to everyone. Sure, there are still papers and really large models, but the baseline AI is now available to almost anyone. You can go on a website, you can download a model. And if you have a GPU or even if you don't have a GPU, you can run it on your own PC without needing to know any fancy language or fancy mathematics. You can write your own model with that. So I think the next steps is definitely going to be accessibility for AI. It's going to reach everyone. And even if there's a winter ahead of us, and that I mean AI winter, I think AI will still manage to change how people use it in their daily workflows. Why do you think there is a AI winter among ahead of us? It's the popping field. It's the buzzword. It's the trend. <laughs> uh, okay. So yeah, definitely it's all of those. Okay. So when I say AI winter, I mean, some people are overhyping AI. 
based on the capabilities. Every day you see some AI doing something new. So people think that AI will replace everyone and everything very soon. Yes, very soon, sure. But if a past experience has taught us anything is that machines are fundamentally limited by the compute power they had. The expert systems and perceptron-based networks in 1960s, 70s, and 80s, they supposedly took over the world? Yes, they did. Your Google search was powered by them before. Your Microsoft Office recommendations were powered by them before. Your Netflix recommendations were powered by that before. But now they're all switching over to a new technology stack. And soon we will reach the limitations of this technology stack too. And if the hype is not controlled, then we will be promising greater and greater things. And when those are not received, the research funding dries up. When the research funding dries up, the advances stop being made and you enter the winter phase of a technology. So if the hype is not controlled, we'll have a winter. Otherwise, we won't have a winter. But in a few years, we'll definitely reach the limits of what AI, current technologies in AI can do for us. I mean, if you look at the models, they're already getting gargantuous. The training time is already going into weeks and months for training the state-of-the-art models. And the state-of-the-art models have become out of reach of almost everyone except the top-tier research and the top-tier companies. So when I talk about AI winter, it's more in those areas that we are already reaching the limits of our current hardware and our current technologies, current architectures. We need, if you want the AI revolution to come, you need to keep finding new ways of carrying forward the momentum. There is a trend that people are blindly getting into ML and AI. Uh, is if you go randomly in institute someone's LinkedIn profile, you can find MLAI enthusiasts written on it. So is so much workforce really required? Is there enough scope in the field itself to accommodate so many people? Yes. I mean, definitely for the areas I am working in. Yes. I mean, <laughs> okay. uh, this is a very weird thing, but if you are a good researcher, if you are an enthusiastic researcher, then there will be jobs for you no matter the field. More specifically in ML, it depends on what you want to do. Do you just want to get a job that says I do ML or do you want to get a job where you are tinkering with the internal workings of ML system? And if you are doing the first one, then you might find it difficult to find to get the jobs where you are happy in. But if you are looking at the second one, you are okay with getting your hands muddy in all the math and the different frameworks, then yes. My company has been looking for AI researchers since last three months, and it's hard to find people who are good in AI. They all claim we have done this, but they are at the first level where they have taken a model and they have deployed a model. They haven't gone beyond that step of, okay, now what to do? I did a hello world of neural networks. Now what should I do in order to say that I, just, I don't just do hello world in it. I can do anything in it. When you learn a new programming language, you don't just make a toy project and write it on your CV. You need to do a lot of hard work in that language. You need to build up a lot of experience with that before you can start doing work in it. And if you are just writing it for hype, no, there are no jobs for you. But if you are enthusiastic and you have a lot of experience, there's limitless jobs in AI right now. Every company is hiring. Tata is hiring for AI researchers in their steel plants. And steel plants is a technology that has not changed drastically since the industrial revolution. So that sort of shows you the scope of AI jobs from things that haven't changed to things that are very new. AI will go everywhere. So there is an enormous scope of jobs, but you should have the skills to back up.
Okay, so for the newcomers who have just started to learn about AI and ML, what would be your advice as to how to start in the field and build up their knowledge base and their uh, experience? So two things is you should develop a common language which is used by the industry and other researchers. First part of that would be learning Keras because Keras is more like an API. It's provided by lots of different frameworks. You can use TensorFlow.Keras for that. That doesn't matter. As long as you know the API, you will it will serve you well in the future. The second thing is get some hands-on experience on why certain things work and why other things don't work. For that, you need to experiment. I personally would recommend fast AI. It's a good combination of high-level libraries, which you can use to combine building blocks. So in the end, it is doing all the heavy lifting for you, but it allows you to take steps in the swimming pool of AI. One step at a time till you go to the deep end. In the deep end, you will be using, you will be writing your own layers. You'll be writing your own loss functions. You will be making sure your data is clean, why certain uh, data points are always coming as false positives or false negatives. That all will come later on, but using fast AI will help you into the process. And for the later on steps, I myself prefer PyTorch. It's much more flexible, but when it comes to deploying uh, TensorRT by NVIDIA and TensorFlow, OpenVINO, all these technologies will be needed. So start slow gain skills and then when it comes to deployment if you have a gpu doesn't matter if you're working on embedded then sure you learn that that comes later on okay i think that would help a lot of peeps who are ml and ai enthusiasts but are not, do not have the dependable knowledge base or experience you can anyone can start and if you know a bit of python but not a lot of python that's also okay the api is really good for fast air they have a book to help you through and it's a lot better now because I just saw it about one, one and a half month ago when they released the new API. It looks really fun to work with. Okay, so similar question for robotics. How does one get into robotics? It was a buzzword for at least me before AI and ML. So how does one go to start in that field? Like there are no, not as many opportunities in the institute as well as there are for AI and ML for robotics, I think. Definitely. Like right now, I know a few colleagues of mine who are trying to make robotics more accessible, but robotics has been quite out of grasp of most people. So the first thing I would say is find an area in robotics, which you would like. So let's say you like designing new robots or you like designing the electrical components of the new robots, or you just want to take a base and do it, do something with it. So what do I mean by robots, by the way? It's not walking dogs. No, it can be as simple as an auto lock that unlocks when it's connected to your Bluetooth of your phone. That was sort of the first project that I did. And does it involve robotics? Yes, it has electrical components. It has some hardware. It has a tiny motor to turn the switch in one direction, turn the lock in one direction or the other. It's a fun thing to do and it will be cheap. So getting started with things like these, where you can, for example, buy an autolog from the market might cost you a bit of money, but then you use those components and you do whatever you want to do with it. That's most likely the way of going forward. If you like gardening, you can make your own scheduled uh, water gardener. So depends on where your hobbies are. If you use your hobbies together, then you can build up your skills much faster than trying to jump 
into a different area without any guidance uh, besides the buzzwords that we have talked about ai and ml and robotics in your opinion what are the fields of where there is much work to do or what is the future in tech the future in tech is software <laughs> it can be any kind of software doesn't matter but even the hardware is now being put on software people are offering hardware as a service and i'm not kidding you can go and one of my friends is making a lab which offers you time on a robot as if you were just getting a machine a virtual machine from amazon web services from aws you can just go click a few buttons and boom you have access to a hardware now you can move that robot around if it's a quadcopter that you went on you can fly it around the onboard system will make sure you don't crash it anywhere but it's all given to you via software a software that took maybe 4 or 5 people months to make and that's not the only place where software is there in logistics in supply chain in fast moving companies in consultancy everywhere people are now moving to using softwares directly in their day to day work so if you know any bit of python or matlab or excel macros that's a crucial skill to have nowadays no matter your job one of my colleagues is a game developer or rather a game asset developer and he knows a bit of python and that allows him to procedurally generate a lot of models and then just throw that out into the pitch meetings that okay you wanted this that's not easy that's not possible but i iterated on a few designs and he'll show us like 100 150 designs that should fit our requirements and that's possible because he knows a bit of python so he knows how to tweak the blender api to do what he wants creating 100 models by hand would be impossible but creating them using an api definitely possible so i think if you are in tech you must know some software even if you are in mechanical even if you are in chemical having knowledge of some programming language will be really useful and then you can enter any industry you want based on that for our conclusion insli janta are being gradually taken away from tech what's your advice for insidenta who wants to pursue a career in tech i would first go say that you find tech in almost everything and it's a matter of finding that job that sucks more than not having that job come to placement in the institute for example the companies that come in the institute let's take a look at goldman sachs or Ben they all have good technical teams behind but they don't come here for the technical expertise they come here for the brains they'll take whatever brain power they can get from iit and they'll put it wherever the demand for that brain power is the highest but if you want to do tech and you want to and you are hired by some company that doesn't do tech there will be some place for you in that company if there isn't i would recommend building a network of seniors of friends going to meetups and once you start doing this once you have a network of even 20 30 people you can leverage that to find jobs that you like and not just that you were chosen for that's like we think that a good company should come to us but that's not always possible a company will come but the position it offers will be to its own liking and if you want something that you like you need to put in the efforts you need to build up your network you need to go to interviews you need to prepare for the interviews you need to make sure your resume has enough material to show your expertise in that you need to have good recommendation letters it takes effort but i think if you are enthusiastic 
it will definitely happen and to anyone who's looking for entering robotics perception ai uh if you are i don't know free hit me up and i'm actually hiring for perception and robotics jobs both ai researchers and software engineers so leverage your network someone or the other will definitely be hiring somewhere thank you gunal for talking to us talking to me no problems it's nice to talk to insti people again after leaving insti you don't see a lot of people who would work day night for a project and yeah you miss you miss that kind of uh, enthu once you are in the job because in a job you only do what you are paid for not more and that sometimes kind of sucks if you are really enthu about your job as well